Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Marcus Adrian. Marcus is an architect and managing principal of Mackie Mitchell Architects in St. Louis. He focuses primarily on the design of learning spaces and accessibility for all ages and abilities. He uses his knowledge and experience to advocate for public policy in support of people with developmental needs. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. So uh, you are one of our TEDx Gateway Art Speakers, which I'm totally excited about. But I got to see your audition. And what was it like to audition and go in there and do that Uh, for three minutes? Woo, we went a lot in three minutes, don't we? And going in with no... um, I had no idea what to expect, so that's interesting. And then you get there, and they say three minutes, no visuals, <laughs> which to an architect <laughs> is is pretty hilarious. Kind of difficult. Uh, yeah, and and I, my my concern is always, am I going to go over? You know, I'm going to go way over, and they're going to cut me off mid sentence, and then you know that's just awful. Well, in three minutes, yeah. I went I went like exactly three minutes, and I don't know what allowed me to limit it to that. I did prepare, you know. So, right. Yeah, and and in a sense, this is stuff that I've been thinking about for ten or twenty years, so. So I don't want to give away too you know much too much about your talk because we really want the talk to be organic to that moment. But I know that um, I was I was fascinated with the thought that the way that a building is created, the architecture itself can lend to a learning experience. And just talk to that a bit. Yeah, it absolutely does lend to it. Um, in the worst cases, it can take away from it. And I think we've we've all seen that from our own. Um, experience growing up and, right. and been in bad classrooms, right? But but not, maybe not necessarily known why. Um, and you design a lot of classrooms before you really start to realize how you can make some of those things measurable. How do you parse it out? How do you how do you divide it up? Because there's a lot of things going on there. And it was uh, for me, it was designing for um, for a, a wide variety of populations that either have something different about their brain or something different about their, um, their senses. Um, when, you, when you design for, for any of those kinds of populations, and you come to realize, by the way, that's everyone, but in designing for those special cases, it makes you think harder. You, you have to kind of go after some of these issues with a, with a, um, with a sharper sword, you know, right. um, to, to begin to realize what's actually going on. Uh, and, and for me, I climbed in through the, the sense of hearing. It was okay. designing deaf schools and, and, and the idea that deaf schools have to be quiet, which was, at first was very fascinating to me. But then f- trying to figure out how do you make a building quiet and how do you make a classroom quiet and why is that important? So, but wh- why does it have to be quiet? So what you, what you learn about learning um, is the commerce of getting ideas into the brain. And, and the first thing you learn, especially if you're working on a, a school for anybody who has... Um, sensory difficulties, whether it's, you know, problems with hearing or problems with vision or problems with processing those things in the brain, which is a lot more common. What you learn about that um, sensory commerce is that there's no way into the brain other than through the senses. You simply can't do it. So, and, and, and the battle that, I guess the, that, that, that commerce is um, the, the dynamic of the com- commerce, of the sensory commerce, of getting ideas into the brain, whether you're in a classroom or reading to your kid at home or uh, regardless, or what we're doing now, right. signal to noise. Uh, what, what is valuable to learn, what is trying to come across, um, what I want you to know if I'm the teacher is signal. 
And that could be the teacher's voice. It could be something that I'm playing from the internet. It could be um, words that I'm writing on a chalkboard or a whiteboard. It could be a video that we're watching. The sensory signal, that's what carries the knowledge. Everything else is noise. And you ah, begin to realize okay. how many different sources of noise there can be, not just on the hearing sense, but especially on the visual sense. And then, you know, human beings are sensory creatures. We have seven senses. And noise can derail attention on any one of those. So at a certain point in this whole thing, I actually, uh, I was bold enough to create my own definition for attention, you know, for my purposes of design. And that is simply uh, the ability to, to establish and maintain cognitive focus on signal in the presence of noise. So noise could be visual. Mm -hmm. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yep. And so if, if cause I, I know that, you know, when my attention is straying, you yeah, know, if like, right. if you, you know, you're yeah, watching TV or something that's kind of boring and, and your attention starts to stray, it's like you, you start to like kind of concentrate on something else. Like all of a sudden you're, Ooh, look at the, my, look at my computer screen and the pretty things that are showing <laughs> yeah. up there while my computer yeah. is sleeping. So I totally get that. And, and what you, so the step that you just took, you know, of, of going from sensory noise. So the, the first thing, you know, if we deal just with hearing, um, the first question is, can you hear me? Because if you can't hear me, you're too far away or, um, or there's too much noise from uh, the, the, the air conditioner that you're sitting next to or, you know, things that we've all seen. Um, if you can't hear me, then, then we don't have a prayer at this, uh, this sensory commerce. The, right. the signal's not even getting there. That's not enough because the next uh, part is, can you understand me? Which has to do with the clarity of the signal. So now we're not just measuring decibels, now we're measuring frequency. And we're measuring the frequency of the signal, which if it's the teacher's voice is gonna be, you know, the, the important parts of it are in the higher frequency range and, and might be right at the same frequency range that that air conditioner next to you is banging away. If it's at a really low frequency, maybe it doesn't matter because it might only be knocking out the vowels in the speech. So. It gets a little more specific, but then there's a third thing, and this is where it spreads to, to so many other areas of human ability, not just sensory ability, is do I have your attention? Because, you know, everything we've talked about so far is sensory signal and noise. There's such a thing as cognitive signal and noise. And if your brain is choosing in that moment, um, and, and let's say you're a kid who maybe has a little bit of difficulty maintaining attention um, because your brain likes to jump, right? right? Um, then if what I'm talking about is not more interesting than the thing you're thinking about or watching your friends on the playground, I lost you. You can hear me just fine. You can even understand me, but your brain has decided on a different path of signal. Interesting. Well, and, and what I've noticed with some kids is they can even answer a question. Like you're like, are you listening to me? And they, yeah, well, what did I just yeah. say? You said this and you're thinking, dang it. But yeah. you, I know you didn't really listen or understand what I'm talking the, about. The brain you know? is, I, I get more and more fascinated by the brain the further we go. The further I go through design as an architect and the further I go through parenthood because I have one of those kids. Ah. I have exactly what you just described. How many gotcha. times I've gotten furious with him because I don't have his eyes. Turns out I did have his ears. Yeah, interesting. And that has to be such a challenge today because, I mean, boy, talk about sensory overload. That we, I, I read a statistic the other day that was something like we see 5,000 images each day, which I can't even fathom how much is put before us. And and then, and now I, I mean, well, it might be my age, but sometimes I just want to blame that on my memory issues because I'll think it's too much stuff. I can't, I can't take all this in. When you are working with um, these, you know, deaf individuals, I mean, did you, 
did you have to do a lot of research, like talk to a lot of people to understand what it feels like to be deaf and trying to learn? Yes, this is universally true for architects and it's probably universally true in a lot of fields. I'm sure that uh, for doctors, they're one of their better sources of, uh, of education is their patients. Uh, and it's absolutely true for architects that my best source of, um, of learning, um, my best source of design ideas, my best source of, of learning how to be a better professional is always come from my clients. And sometimes that's the teachers. Sometimes it's a brilliant administrator who did a lot of years in the classroom as a teacher and just has remarkable clarity. Sometimes it's the kids themselves and, and what you'll learn from them because you really have to be a student of human behavior. We're designing for human behavior. Right. And, and in a classroom, not just in a classroom, but especially perhaps in a classroom, you think of all the different kinds of classrooms that go from an early childhood classroom where you can't lecture to a four-year-old. They won't let you do it. It's not <laughs> possible. So that's why an early childhood classroom doesn't look like a lecture hall. One part of it does where we do circle time, but the rest of it is totally different. And then you go all the way through higher education. And so much of higher ed does look like lecture, but it's beginning to evolve. And, and does it have to be so much lecture? And there are reasons for that that we can kind of talk about. But uh, human interaction always has a geometry. That commerce, that sensory commerce, which is, it is, a it is a sensory commerce, it's a cognitive commerce, and it's also a social commerce in the classroom, has been getting richer in the 21st century, especially perhaps in higher education. Wow, and exciting the, the, So stuff. the geometry is changing, the way, which means that the way we design classrooms is changing. All right, we are going to take a break and we will be right back with Marcus Adrian. back with Marcus Adrian. Okay, so during the break, we talked a bit about the, you know, over the years being in a number of different types of classrooms, lecture halls, what have you, and how some of them you feel like, I just want to get out of here. This is, you know, this is so boring. I can't, I can't focus, what have you. And then others you feel more comfortable in. And you had some interesting thoughts on yeah. that. There's a tendency, and this, this works on all of those levels, the sensory and the cognitive and the social level. There's a tendency to think that because the, the game is signal to noise ratio, that we want to lift the signal as high as we can. And we got to deal away with as much noise as possible because, by God, I'm going to get this signal through to your head, <laughs> I'm right? I'm going to yell at you. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to get it in there whether you want it or not. So sit still, right? It's my duty. <laughs> sit still might be the worst advice that we could give. And, right. and that's not just sit still physically, but also sit still socially and sit still cognitively because the brain tells you not to do those things. It's actually bad for survival. When you're on the African savanna a million years ago, it trust, it tells you focus is focus will get you killed because there are predators on the horizon and right. you better be looking, Scanning, better have a head on a swivel. Right. Right. And, and be interested in different things too because there are a lot of different components to survival. So with all of that going on, the danger is that when you're, you're really bi biasing signal and trying to do away with noise, um, you, you make the room less stimulating. And I think that's one of the problems that we've discovered with lecture. Not that lecture is bad. I, I'm not one of those guys who's saying we have to do away with lecture. I think lecture should still be maybe half or approaching half of what we do. And, and part of the reason is because 
sometimes it requires that level of focus. When you're right. teaching calculus and, and, and you decide that you're going to be able to teach calculus in small groups of five, unless you have Newton and Leibniz and three or four other people in the room who are capable of inventing calculus, <laughs> you have to teach it. You have to, you have to demonstrate first. There has to be some push, but it's what you do after that. When you start getting into the problems, that's, and when you start to get to more nuanced uh, subjects, then, you know, there's a certain amount of mastery that's required so that we can have a good conversation, right. but now let's get to the conversation. So then you get to those richer geometries that are more interactive. And I think, Getting back to your question, I think what has been changing about education top to bottom in the 21st century so far is that um, uh, teaching and learning have become more social, and they're increasingly more social, not just because we want to have a fuller conversation or we want to be more inclusive. That's a label that gets slapped on it a lot of times, but I think um, part of the reason is because if we're trying to solve these problems of the 21st century, the stuff that we didn't solve in the 20th, these are problems, the, the problems, the big problems that remain are ones that you can't solve within an individual discipline. I think that we've by and large already solved everything that we can solve within medicine alone, within engineering alone. And a lot of the, the big problems that are more complex, the, the next level problems that are, our universities are built to solve, by the way, require an interdisciplinarity. Ooh. You have to jump outside of what you know, and unless the, um, the, the, the doctors are talking to the biologists and the engineers, we're not going to get to, or, and, and public policy, we're not going to solve obesity. We're not going to solve cancer. Um, these are things that require a, a multidimensional approach, and that is necessarily social. So it takes a team. It takes a team, and it takes interactions among right. the team. Not just interacting over conversation, but interacting over work. And if you imagine what would that look like where they get together, not just in a lab at Pfizer, but what would it look like on a university campus, then now you're getting to some, that actually becomes a fountain for design ideas. You know, and there's a lot of, uh, I've heard of companies now that, that have people that are disruptors. Mm -hmm. That literally is, that yeah. is their, their role within the company is to show up in meetings and be disruptive, make people think outside of the box, which I think is brilliant mm -hmm. because we all get into, you know, what we call our sacred cows, right? So like, this is the way we do it, the way we've always done it, no reason to break it. And it's like, no, there is a reason to break it because we aren't exceeding. <laughs> we aren't getting to that place we really want to go because we keep doing it this way. Yeah. And some people find that really uncomfortable. Obviously, TED people do not. We like disruptive things, but... Um, but I think that it. So I think it's interesting that you're you're talking about if we're going to solve all these problems, it can't be done just with the people that are directly involved. You got to get some people that are indirectly involved, mm -hmm. in order to really make make it happen. Definitely. Ooh, how exciting! I think that works for corporations too. Yeah. I think that uh, our corporations are becoming better for that reason. You look at campuses that are being designed now in ways that they weren't designed before. Uh, 21st, in the 20th century, there was a, a premium on going deep, a premium on expertise, a premium on, you know, how much is invested in one person, one right. executive, one inventor, war, you know, the corner office fascination, the, the C-suite, right? The right. top, the right. best of the best. And you look at the geometry of what's being designed now by the largest companies in the world, the ones that broke the most ground at the close of the 20th century, companies like Apple. Right. That's a round building. 
I love that's an interesting thought. You're right. They understand that it's a different geometry, uh, and I, I do think that that is um, on purpose. I don't think that that is. Uh, I don't think that they're hapless victims of some kind of brilliance that said, "Hey, what about round?" I, I do think that they understand that that it is a different geometry that that um, that solves these newer, more complex problems. So, do you think that we are also going to start seeing this in you know, in a more like like within our housing? Hmm. Interesting question. Um, probably last. That's probably where we will see it last. I think um, because you think about the well, I, I think you'll see it. So, our firm does a lot of uh, college and university housing. Okay. And and that's where you really start to learn how to live, not just learn how to learn, but um, right at this tender age of 18 or so, um, where you're at your most fragile socially and maybe cognitively, you leave your support structure, and uh-huh. move to another city <laughs> and take up housing amongst a whole bunch of people that you don't know, but you're so fascinated by, and just the explosion of, of learning how to be a person. College and university housing has really evolved uh, and involved, evolved not just to be more appealing um, because it's all about you know the magnetism of how do we draw top talent, how do we draw top students, but it's also been evolving, I think, because today's students no longer perceive the living and learning and social dimensions of campus life as separate. I think we you look at campuses from 40, 50 years ago. It was it was pretty separate. You live over here. Right. You're going to learn over here. And here's your student center with a bowling alley or pool tables if you're lucky, right? <laughs> right. You, and, it was, and the demarcations were clear. You're going to play over here. You're going to eat over here. You're going to study over here in the library. And you're going to live over here. Yeah. And it was very compartmentalized. Right. That's not as stimulating. It, it, the, the geometries of that are not as powerful, I think, in terms of getting at human potential of on today's campus, you learn everywhere. Um, you see just as many students who are studying in the student center as they are studying in the library because there's a certain craving and a certain tolerance for a little bit more stimulation when you're trying to learn. Oh, That insistence that you can only learn in a quiet environment is by and large gone. So I think what will, it'll take a generation because the students who are learning how to live in those buildings in that environment that has richer, more social geometries will insist on that when they graduate into the world. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to see what it's going to, I mean, that's really interesting. You think about it because even the, I, um, I went up to New York in April for Ted Fest and we watched, I don't even know how many Ted talks that we watched um, while we were there, but one of the women talked about co-housing and how that's becoming a, it's a trend in the sense that there are people that, that families all look different nowadays. And in her instance, she is a single mother with two children, not a lot of family. And, and she has this, she now co-houses with other people. And she said, you know, there's an older couple, they don't have any grandkids, but my children are kind of like their grandkids and they read to them and they, they do homework with them. And everybody gathers in the same spot every night to eat together. Other And everybody has their turn in making the dinner. And I was like, what a cool idea that is. And and that sense of community that can sure. happen with that. It's more stimulating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are more variables, sure, but there's also more opportunities for learning. Fabulous. I also awesome. think there's less waste in that kind of uh, environment because you think about the, you know, the single family home mentality that has been so rugged that we call it the American dream. Right. And I, I live in a single family house and in a neighborhood. Everybody has a living room, and by and large, that living room is empty. <laughs> There's nobody in it. That's true. Uh, and then you also have another room where you, you know, th- think about the geometry of that, you know, of everybody staring at a screen. 
or staring at their own screens now. Right, right. Yeah. True. Yeah, because you can be very much into and and then what about tools? You could just buy like one tool that everybody can use. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. I, no, I do think I, part of part of that uh, appeal is understanding the efficiencies of it. Certainly on campuses, because they're having to pay attention increasingly to the efficiencies as they can gain. That that you know, because it's man, it's. I love the idea of it. Okay, we're going to take another break. We will be right back with Marcus. We are back with Marcus Adrian, and it is question time, sir. All right. So, um, I this is one of these things that always okay. I don't know why, but when I watch different shows, like I don't know, The Walking Dead, <laughs> and I see these buildings. I mean, is that a good portrayal? So you've got a building, and let's say that it just it's abandoned. Nobody's messing with it. There's been no um, natural disaster. It just is sitting there with no maintenance. Is, what will they look like? Yeah. Like, how long will it take for nature to, trees to start growing through it? What have yeah, you? Not long. Not really? long at all. Yeah. Yeah. A building that's not cared for. And of course it varies because you've got varieties of different kinds of buildings, materials, systems, et cetera. Some are designed to last longer than others, but none of them are really designed to hold up against the forces of nature forever. Not even, you know, not even the Rocky Mountains will hold up forever. So well, that's true. Yeah, there's no such thing as a as a permanent building. But it, it does fascinate me because I always think that I'm like, really? Would it look like that already? Like there's only been zombies for a year. <laughs> would it really look that way? I mean, you, you know, I wonder. It wouldn't be the zombies really that would do it. I don't I don't think I don't know how yeah. No, I'm I've just trying like let's say students, zombies but... didn't even like enter the picture. Just the right. building sitting there and uh -huh. no one's going in and out, nobody's sweeping the floors and painting the walls. It it's not the dust, it's the water. Ah. Yeah, it's what falls from the sky. That's what is going to... Think about what erodes mountains, too. Yeah, you know, it's, true. And it's not just erosion. It's when water gets in, uh, especially in climates like ours, water gets in, and when water freezes, it expands. Right. If it gets into large cracks, then it can cause them to be even larger. But if it, it also gets into tiny cracks. So if you've got brick on the outside of your house, you know, water is... Those bricks are soaking up that water like a sponge. Right. Uh, and then it, it freezes and, you know, that water is going to grow and it's going to... So those bricks are shrinking and swelling and shrinking and swelling and going through all those cycles. You think about it at that really tiny level, there's a lot of stress going on there that eventually that thing's just going to yield. How interesting. All yeah. right. Yeah, so, water water's the good, thing that'll kill a building. I, I believe the, the TV people now. <laughs> right. It's not just a sales pitch. Yeah. Um, all right. So we all, there's you know the famous architects, Frank Geary, Frank Lloyd Wright. All right. But is there one, is there an architect that you think we should know? Wow. You mean like a, a favorite? Yeah, like a favorite. One that the people don't know about that, that well, probably should. Well, maybe we don't. I'm not up on all my architects, so I may yeah, not yeah. know. Okay. There, I'll throw out one that I think uh, would be a pretty easy fascination for most people right about now because of where we are in terms of um, we're, we're kind of in transitioning from a preference for um, older traditional styles of architecture, um, especially here in the Midwest, to um, fascinations that are a little bit more modern or were modern when they first, the whole mid-century thing. Okay. The Mad Men aesthetic, the 1950s. The, yeah. 
buildings that are simpler, buildings that are less um, less based on you know a, a tradition of architecture that goes back you know thousands of years, you know that that sort of thing. I'm, I've always been so fascinated by those architects that kind of bridge between those periods and draw just enough from the tradition and that the the forms that we recognize from traditional architecture of whatever kind, and also then breaking the mold and simplifying. And, and relying more on pure geometries and simpler forms. Um, uh, Charles Rennie McIntosh, uh, Scottish architect from I, I, around turn of the century, okay. right, 1900. There's so many of them from that period, from around 1900, that fit that mold of, of, of really breaking the mold um, uh, from you know, going from something new. And you, you get these uh, at any kind of upheaval in, in civilization, usually an upheaval in the upward direction, an industrial revolution, a gilded age, any of that sort of thing. That's when you, you get these, uh, these little miniature renaissances. So what, would we know any of his buildings or where would we find his, I mean, I'm Glasgow, well, obviously Google, just Google Macintosh architect. Uh, and um, um, really um, a great career, not just as an architect, but also as a pattern maker. Uh, and, and artistic, in the Art Nouveau tradition and in the Art Nouveau era, Okay. Uh, he was one of the the, the real celebrated architects you know, oh, that, cool. that come from that period. I'm going to look it up. Not Thank too far you. from Sullivan. So you look at the Wainwright building that's downtown. All right. And, and the use of nature. So another thing that's that's huge in uh, Macintosh's um, uh, work, not just in his design of buildings, but especially in his design of furniture and, and windows and that sort of thing, is natural forms. And, that, yeah. and so Frank Lloyd Wright really came from that tradition. Um, um, learning from Sullivan, working for Sullivan. And Sullivan belongs to that same kind of era and tradition of Macintosh and others of back to nature, back to, you know, not, not relying on rules to design buildings and tradition to design buildings to make those choices for you, but going back to the source of what's the real thing itself, what is actually needed here and allowing the, those constraints to design the building. Very purposeful. And organic. Ooh. Organic in the way of going back to the origins of, of what is needed for this building and then allowing that to design the building. Thank you for that. Yeah. I love, I'm going to look it up. Gaudi That's really was interesting. A, yeah. Gaudi oh was another hey, one. He's the guy on my mind. I love Gaudi. Yeah. So I, I lived in Madrid, Spain, and oh. I went to Barcelona or Barcelona, Barcelona a few times. And, um, and that architect, I was like, I love this guy. Then he has a quote that you're going to love, which is exactly what I'm talking about, which is uh, originality is from the origin. If you want to do something original, then go back to the roots of the problem. Go back to the origin of the thing and begin inventing it new. And that, that wasn't just his, uh, his design aesthetic. It was also his structural aesthetic. Okay. Yeah. He did this, this thing where, you know, to, to make a building stand up and understand the forces that are going to play on that building over its life, the gravity mostly. Right. Um, turn the thing upside down and weight it with sandbags. And the way that the that the fabric he would take these these fabric structures and 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 hang sandbags that represented the loads, and oh, he would scale the sandbags to the loads of the gravity. That's how he designed Sagrada Familia in large part, and that, that's why it looks so. Um, uh, well, it, it looks like the, the structure that he created by turning the fabric upside down and, and hanging the sandbags from it. Interesting. To understand what is the path of the actual force, what what path does it want to take? What's the shape that it wants to take because of what gravity is doing to it? I so want to go back and see it. I haven't seen it. I mean, it's been 25 years since I've seen it. And and peop, it, it's grown. It just keeps growing. It's like the never ending, right? It's never going to be done. They, that's the thing they talk about. And I don't know that it will be. 
It's amazing also because it's so sculptural. Yeah. You know, on, on so many levels. It's sculptural on a grand level when you see it so so many miles away on the skyline and it's so prominent on that city skyline. Uh, and then as you approach it, there's a there's a, a, a large level of sculptural detail and a, a medium level and then the very fine level. It's such a rich building. It's so, he, I love, he's my favorite. Yeah. If I mean, if I had to, that would be my favorite. All right, so... Something like the pyramids, right? The, the pyramids have lasted forever, right? Okay, do we have, have we designed anything like that? I mean, modern day, have we designed anything that's going to last that long? Super durable structures, things yeah. that are designed to stand for a thousand years. Well, locally, the arch comes to mind. Uh, it's, a, it's an uncanny structure. Um, yes. And you think about what wind and gravity can do to it, but it was designed for those forces. And there's a simplicity there that doesn't give nature many edges to get its fingernails under. And really that's, if you want to create a building that is going to last a long time, you know, imagine like an eggshell dome, something that has no cracks or crannies or where nature can get its fingernails in and begin to pry it apart because that's what it will do, whether it's wind or rain or any of the other forces. Uh, And then other than that, you're just designing for gravity. Oh, cool. So our arch just, it could like... Hundreds of thousands of years from now, I don't people know about are going to be darn. Probably not that. Gravity, wind, and gravity might get it before that, but uh, it was certainly designed to last a long, long time. I mean, the skin of it is stainless steel, right? And they gave it some attention recently. and found out that it really doesn't need much attention at this point. Wow! Um, it will, but it's designed not to corrode, and it's uh, it's a really robust structure. It's concrete on the inside, and how cool! I've been up in it when the wind is. It's not. It doesn't feel comfortable. I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> it does not I feel comfortable. You can, you can rest assured, though, that it's not going to. Yeah, right. I mean, I, and so you know that, but still you're up there going, hmm, <laughs> right. okay, wind, you could better. stop anytime sure. now. <laughs> right. Well, Marcus, thank you. This has been so fascinating. Um, I'm excited for your talk. Is there anything else you want to share with us before we go about our days? Nothing I can think of. Well, I appreciate you being here. Thank it's you. been fascinating. I can't wait to hear what you have to tell us on October 27th. Everyone out there, please make sure you subscribe to Mishmash on iTunes and SoundCloud and have awesome days. <laughs>